sitting or standing in church, God knows the depths of your heart and he loves you the same as Jesus. Yes, that's a dangling participle. It's related to our sermon title and to Psalm 139, so turn there in your Bible, Psalm 139, and yes, it's a line from the Chris Tomlin song, Indescribable. The wonderful truth of God's omniscience is that he knows all the sin and the muck and the mire and the filth in our hearts, and yet he still loves us with the same love that he loves his own son, Jesus. And that ought to give you goosebumps, by the way. So turn to Psalm 139. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 4 today, and then we'll come back to this psalm in a few weeks. So Psalm 139, look at verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it altogether. What a searching psalm, pun intended, and what a humbling psalm too. God searches and knows our hearts. He knows when we get up, when we sit down, when we take a nap, what we think. Oh, heck, he just knows everything about us, doesn't he? That's God's omniscience, and that's the attribute of God that we're going to be looking at today. So let's define this term, omniscient. It comes from Latin, omni, meaning all, and science or scientia, which means to know, and yes, we get our English word science from this word. So when we say that God is omniscient, we mean that God knows all. He knows everything. And the Bible makes this very clear. God's eyes, that's anthropomorphic language, by the way, God's eyes see everything. He searches all hearts and he observes everyone's ways. In other words, he knows everything about everything and everybody all the time. It reminds me of this scene in the NBC sitcom, The Office, where a dim-witted but charming character named Kevin Malone says this, sometimes I feel like everyone I work with is an idiot. And by sometimes, I mean all times, all the times, every of the times. God knows everything about everything and everybody all the time. And by sometimes, I mean all times, all the times, every of the times. God knows everything about everybody every of the times. Matthew Barrett says, what God knows now, he has always known, and he has known it perfectly. His knowledge does not develop over time. Can you imagine if it did? How could we ever trust his decisions? Perhaps his decision today is based on knowledge that will improve tomorrow. Thankfully, such is not the case with an eternally omniscient God. He knows everything by one eternal act. Everything is as if it were present to God, even things that have yet to occur in our experience, because he does not grow in his knowledge, 
knowing something that he did not know before. To be exact, there is no before or future with God. He knows everything timelessly, eternally. That's omniscience. But please don't get the idea that in Psalm 139, David is somehow bothered by God's omniscience. Or that it's somehow a negative thing that God knows everything about him. Because the tone of Psalm 139, which you'll get if you keep reading, and you read verse 7, and you read verse 14, and you read verse 17, the tone of this song is actually praise and adoration. David is actually exulting, and he is rejoicing in the fact that God knows everything about him. I'm not sure any person here would exult in and rejoice that even one person on earth knew everything about them. Not even our own spouses. Do we really want someone to know all the thoughts that we think? No thanks. I'm not signing up for that at the Welcome Center. Do we really want to open up the depths of our heart to someone like that? No thanks. But the good news, the good news is that God knows the depths of our heart. And that's not scary for David. He actually gets a kick out of the idea that God knows everything about him. And here's why. And this is very important to keep in mind as you read the psalm. David has enemies who are breathing down his neck. He has people who want to slit his throat. You can read about it in verse 19. He'll eventually get there. David has people who hate him, who hate Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, and they want to take David out. They are wicked men, men of blood, killers, cold-blooded killers, and David is the next item on their to-do list. And this is why God's omniscience comforts David and causes him to praise. Because he knows that God knows all about these thugs. He knows that God is absolutely aware of everything that is happening in his life. And like David, God knows what is happening In your world, he sees and he actually cares. And Psalm 139 is proof. And the Holy Spirit inspired David to write this psalm so that I could tell you today on April 10th, so I could show you today from this psalm that God cares. This psalm was written for you, for today, for everything that is going on. In your life. And the all knowing God who is pictured here in Psalm 139 sees all that is happening in your world and he is truly working it out for your good and also for his glory. So you can trust the doctrine of God's omniscience and you can trust the God of this doctrine. Listen, God knows how many hairs. There are on your head for crying out loud. It's easier to count for some people. It's easier for him. Who keeps track of that? The numbers on people's heads. Who really? Who even really wants to know that number? God does. What did Jesus say in Luke twelve? Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? 
And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So obviously, his eye is on the sparrow and also on your scalp. And if God lavishes such concern over the rest of his creation, like sparrows that are, on for, that are for sale, five for two pennies, how much more does he care for us? If he's not going to forget the sale that they were having that day, five sparrows for two pennies, and he remembers each one of those sparrows, then how much more does he love us? He knows how many hairs there are on your head. I mean, what is Jesus' point here? It's that God actually cares about all kinds of things in our life that we don't even care about or we don't even think about. When's the last time you thought, hmm, I wonder how many hairs are on my head? You probably didn't think about that because you don't care about that. Jesus thinks about that because he cares about that. He cares about all kinds of things in our lives. Just read Psalm 56, where once again David kind of marries God's omniscience with his troubles and the people who are out to get him. Listen to Psalm 56, 8 through 9. David says, You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. So who not only knows but keep tracks, keeps track of how many times we toss and turn in our beds at night? Jesus. Who not only knows how many tears we've cried but collects them in a bottle because they are valuable to him? Jesus. Who not only knows but has a journal full of all of our problems? Jesus. Does this make him a weirdo? Counting hairs counting how many times we toss and turn in our bed at night, counting our tears and keeping them in a bottle. No, it's anthropomorphic and anthropopathic language to show us just how much Jesus cares. He notices. He's absolutely aware of everything happening in your life, and he's not distant, and he's not distracted. He has a laser focus on you and everything happening in your heart right now, and he cares, and he's working. So here's what you're supposed to say after you read Psalm 56. You're supposed to copy David and say, This I know that God is for me. You may not know what God is doing. You may not know why what is happening is happening in your life. Why this suffering? Why this trouble? Why this sorrow? But you can say this here. This I know that God is for me. You're supposed to quote David after you read Psalm 56. And that's what you're supposed to say after reading Psalm 139 or hearing a sermon about Psalm 139. You're supposed to say, this I know that the omniscient God is for me. And I hope you leave today. No, I hope you believe and feel it right now that God is for you because he is. He is intimately involved in your life and he knows everything about you. Every care, every worry, every fear, every anxious thought. Back to verse 1, when David says in verse 1, Oh, Yahweh, you have searched and known me. The Hebrew lacks the word me. David is saying, you have searched me and known. Full stop. You know it all. 
And the verbs in verses 1 through 5 that are associated with how Yahweh, how the Lord uh, acts and, and responds with David here are in the perfect tense in the Hebrew, which suggests this kind of ongoing reality with God. God always knows David. All of God knows all of David all of the time. And the same is true for you, Christian. All of God knows all of you all of the time. All that, God, all that God is, is, is. We saw that last week. And all that God is, is the great heart knower. Only God knows our hearts. This is humbling. We don't even know our own hearts. We think we do. We have no idea. What does the prophet Jeremiah say in Jeremiah 17? The heart is deceitful above all things. More than politicians The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, Yahweh, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Who can understand the human heart? Only Jesus. So we really don't have any idea just how sinful we are how messed up we are and damaged and broken. Our sin actually keeps us from understanding how sinful we are because the heart is deceitful. It's not going to tell us you're really bad. It's going to say, you're bad, but you're not as bad as that guy. Our sin actually keeps us from understanding how sinful we are. Think about that. Sin keeps us from truly understanding just how sinful we truly are. We have an idea, but we have no idea just how sinful we are. However, the longer that we are a Christian, the more we grow spiritually and mature, the more the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, then the more we begin to see just how sinful we truly are. So understand this, discipleship is really just about going deeper and deeper into humility, deeper and deeper into just how damaged by Adam's sin you are. We see this with the Apostle Paul in A.D. 53 to 55-ish. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. Fast forward five to seven years And this is what he says around A.D. 62. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. And then two years later, A.D. 64-ish, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so Paul, as he matured spiritually, Paul began to see and understand just how sinful he was. He goes from, I'm the least of the apostles, to I'm the very least of the saints, all the way to I am the foremost of sinners. Paul began to understand just how sinful and sick his heart was. And that's growth in the Christian life. 
We don't grow up, we grow down. Discipleship and Christian maturity move downward into humility. It's growing, one, in your understanding of your sinfulness, and two, in your unworthiness of God's grace and mercy. So you begin to plumb the depths of your sin, and you begin to face what really lies at the bottom of your heart, and then as your eyes adjust... You begin to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and his cross more and more and more. You begin to be in awe of Jesus and all that he has done for you. You begin to go deeper and deeper into the ocean of God's love. You leave the kiddie pool and you start going deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel because you know just how sinful you are. So we have just begun to scratch the surface of how sinful we are. But God knows because God knows our hearts. He knows everything inside, all of it. Jesus is the great heart knower. In fact, two times in the book of Acts, he's called the heart knower. The Greek word is cardionosta. So you can see where we get our English words from, cardionosta, heart Knower, Acts one twenty four, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all. Then Acts 15.8, and God, who knows the heart. So the very first name that the early church uses to address God in prayer in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, is they call him the heart knower. they got to replace Judas, and they call that and they say, Oh, great heart knower, who's it going to be? You know. And that's the nickname that they give God at the beginning of the book of Acts. Heart knower. They stress his omniscience when they address God in prayer. Think about that. He's the great heart knower. He knows our hearts better than even we do. That's humbling. Here's the problem, though. I got to take a drink for this one, okay? Here's the problem. We often think that we know people's hearts. We act like we're omniscient, as if we can read people's hearts and motives. And this is very dangerous for our relationships, y'all. I have to say that one more time. And I'm going to say the next sentence twice as well. This is very dangerous for our relationships. So understand this. Misperceptions can sour relationships misperceptions, misperceiving what is happening in a situation, what you think someone said or did can sour our relationships. And we've all experienced this. And it can happen anywhere, the church, workplace, family. And we're all prone to do this. We start to think that we know what someone's motives are. We think that we know what's going on in their hearts, but we can't. And then we begin to act differently. And we begin to treat them differently. Well, they must be thinking this, so, well, I'm going to do this. And they may not be thinking that at all. So we begin to think differently about them, treat them differently, based on our so-called discernment and perception of their heart. But misperceptions sour human hearts and relationships. Listen, we are not competent. We are not skilled in judging human hearts. We just can't do it. We don't have that skill set. We don't have that gifting. We don't have that capacity. We don't have that attribute. 
that attribute belongs solely to God, even though we act like we have it. Only Jesus can see and read human hearts. We can't. And we all struggle with this, don't we? We assume people's motives, or we assume things about people, or we hear something about some person, and we take that as gospel truth, when it may not even be true, and then we treat them differently based on something that we heard that may not even be true. Oh, Holy Spirit, help us, right? Help us. We need you, Holy Spirit. We're not good at doing this, are we? It's so much easier to talk about someone or some situation and go off of hearsay rather than go to the person directly. Let's not do that as a church, okay? They should say, you know, as a church, we're not going to do that. Other churches can do this. We're not going to do that here. Let's be a church that gives the benefit of the doubt to one another. What would this place look like if we did that? I'm going to give that person the benefit of the doubt. Let's be a church that doesn't assume that we know what's going on in someone's heart why they do or don't do what they do, by God's grace. Let's do our best not to assume what is happening in someone else's heart. Only Jesus knows hearts. And Jesus knows all your deepest, darkest secrets, including your internet history. He knows the perverted thoughts that you have. He knows it all, everything. And yet, he still loves you and he accepts you. Sitting or standing in church, God knows the depths of your heart and he loves you the same as Jesus. God the Father loves his children just like him with the same love that he loves his own Jesus. That should make your jaw drop open. Everybody's mouths right now should be like, oh. I'll say it again and if you want to do that, you can. Like it's children's church. Everybody's jaw drop open when I say this. You can play along if you want to. But God the Father loves his children just like and with the same love that he loves his son, Jesus. And if you don't believe me, maybe Jesus can convince you because he was praying for this for us in John 17. He said, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He knows your heart better than you do and he still loves you. Who knew that the doctrine of God's omniscience could warm your heart and make you burst forth with praise? Because if anyone else besides God saw what was in our hearts, they'd run away from us. They wouldn't want to be our friend. They'd probably block us on social media. And they might alert the authorities. It's pretty shocking. That he still loves us. But what's the purpose of talking about how sinful we are? Why are you doing that, Pastor? Is it to make us feel horrible about ourselves? No, because we do that pretty good on our own, don't we? The reason that we or David can speak freely about our sin is because it reminds us of what a great Savior we have. As Ian Duguid says, the purpose of confessing our sins is not to render us miserable by simply reminding us what great sinners we are, it is to remind us of what a great Savior we have. And when we talk about the doctrine of God's omniscience, we don't have to shrink back in fear. We can admit just how messed up and sinful we are because God already knows. 
and we can rejoice because the most holy, most pure person in the universe actually loves us. But as David talks about the omniscience of God here, understand this is not an academic affair. This is not a paper that David has written in seminary as he's working on his PhD in Hebrew or whatever. David is not, uh, not describing Yahweh's omniscience in this very true but very academic way that I'm about to read to you by John Gill. John Gill, born in 1697, died in 1771. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said about John Gill, and then I'm going to read a small bit of what John Gill said about God's omniscience. Spurgeon said this, he was notable as a divine for the exactness of his systematic theology. So let me read a portion of John Gill's exactness, okay, and tell you that this is not what David's doing here, okay? But everything John Gill says is true, but let me read it to you. In a word, God knows all things in himself, in his own essence and nature. He knows all things possible in his power and all that he wills to do in his will and all creatures in himself as the first cause of them, in whose vast and eternal mind are all the original ideas of them so that the knowledge of God is essential to him. It is his nature and essence and therefore is incommunicable to a creature and even to the human nature of Christ, which though united to a divine person that is omniscient, yet does not thereby become omniscient. And though the human soul of Christ may know more than the soul of any man, yet not everything, the Knowledge of God is also infinite. He knows himself, that is infinite, which he could not unless his knowledge was infinite. For it is impossible that he should know what is perfectly infinite if his knowledge was not perfectly infinite. For what is finite can never comprehend that which is infinite. And he knows all things ad infinitum. There is no searching of his knowledge. It is perfect and nothing can be added to it. And it is not conjectural but certain depending on his will. He knew from all eternity most certainly that all things would be that are because he determined they should be. And his will cannot be frustrated nor his power resisted. All of that is true, but very academic and exact and precise and wordy. But it wouldn't make for a catchy chorus for David and company to sing in public worship on the Sabbath. Here in Psalm 139, David just wants to praise and worship the omniscient God. So he doesn't use big theological words or concepts. He brings it all down to the bottom shelf for us. Thank you, David. And he says, God, you know me. You know when I get up. You know when I sit down. You know how many naps I take. You know my thoughts. You know every dangling part of simple that I've ever used in a worship song. And so David is not just reading the definition of omniscience from a systematic theology book with no feelings. David is worshiping here. This is adoration. David is in awe of the omniscient God. His theology leads him to doxology, to praise and to worship. And that's how it should always be. Listen, if your study of God, if your study of the undomesticated attributes of God, if your study of the Bible and doctrine and systematic theology does not lead to worship and awe, then you, my friend, are doing theology wrong. And so many people in the Reformed camp do this. If there is a dam between your head and your heart, you're doing theology wrong. If you look down on others because they don't believe the same as you, you're doing theology wrong. I need to read that one again for myself. 
If you look down on others because they don't believe the same as you, you're doing theology wrong. Theology should always lead to worship, awe, adoration, humility, jaw dropped open. That's the goal of studying the attributes of God. That's the goal of theology is that your jaw drops open. And so here's the theology of God's omniscience that's oozing out of this psalm. Nothing is hidden from God, past, present, or future. So nothing can surprise or confuse him. He is never startled. He never learns anything new. He never has a new thought. Think about that. God never has a new thought. He has never had a new thought. He has always known everything. So he's never caught off guard. And he knows the future as much as he knows the past and the present. And he also knows, get this, he also knows all possible events that could but never happen. For instance, he knows how your life might have changed for better or worse if you had decided not to go to Chick-fil-A one day for lunch. So let's say you plan on going to Chick-fil-A one day at lunch. And then you look across the street at Raising Cane's and you're like, there's no line in the drive-thru. It's a miracle. I'm going to go to Raising Cane's. So you decide to go there. And then instead of of heading back home, you decide to swing through Starbucks. And then whatever happens to you as a result of changing your lunch plans, and then every decision after that, God knows all that for every person. God knows what would have happened if you went to Chick-fil-A, like originally planned, and then some, someone happened to hit your car as you were backing out, and then you didn't go to Starbucks. He knows every scenario and how your life might have been if you had made one decision different. And think of how many decisions we make a day. He knows how things would have been if you didn't get the Cobb salad at Chick-fil-A, but you changed your mind as you were ordering, and you got the number one combo with the sweet tea. And he knows how your day would have changed if they did or didn't forget to give you Chick-fil-A sauce. And your life can change when they don't give you the Chick-fil-A sauce, right? You know what it's like. All of our kids are different. Okay? In our family, we have a ketchup ranch Chick-fil-A sauce person, I think. Or it's ketchup ranch barbecue, can't remember. Then we have a Chick-fil-A barbecue kid. Then we have a ranch kid. And then we have a two Chick-fil-A kid. It's all different. And when you go to Chick-fil-A, sometimes you don't get all your sauces, and so your life changes, doesn't it? And sometimes they get it right, and oh, how your life changes for the better. God knows all possible worlds that could have been if he willed them different. He knows all your goings and doings because he determined them. That's omniscience. There's actually a passage, I think it's 2 Samuel 23, 1 Samuel 23, where David inquires of the Lord, if I go into the city, are they going to kill me? And God says, yes. (laughs) If you want to go into the city, they're going to kill you. He knows every possible scenario. As David says here, God even knows every time you sit down and when you stand up. So just take last week, for instance. You sat down and stood up how many times? Do you have an idea? A lot, right? And you have no idea How many times you went up, down, up, down. But God does. Pick any day of your life and God could tell you how many times you sat down and got up. 
And it's not like God is a computer and he has to wait to retrieve the file. He doesn't have to pull the information up or pull up your sit-down stand-up file. He just knows. And he knows all your thoughts, as David says in verse 2. Let that sink in. He knows every single thought that you have ever had. He knows every time you've thought, this is not that great of a sermon. Shame on you. (laughs) I've had those thoughts. James Boyce says, because God knows all things, he knows the worst about us and yet has loved us and saved us. We needn't, we needn't fear that something within us will rise up to startle God, that some forgotten skeleton will come tumbling out of our closet to expose our shameful past or that some informer will, informer will speak out against us to bring shame. Nothing can happen that isn't already known to God. In other words, we can't keep any secrets from God. In fact, as David says in verse 4, before any word is on your lips, guess what? God knows. God knows every dangling participle that you've ever used in a sentence. He knows every verb and adverb that you have ever uttered and every verb or adverb that you ever will. He knows every bad word you have ever said. He knows every word that we have or ever will say. Think about that. And then think about how much we talk as human beings. How many words does the average human speak in a lifetime? Back in 1984, some guy came up with his estimate of 860,341,500. So 860.3 million words in a lifetime is this guy's guess. That's the equivalent of reading the Bible over 1,100 times, depending on the translation. That's a guess at how many words we speak over a lifetime. And God knows every word for every person who has ever lived. And so you could quiz him and you could ask him, Jesus, on April 10th, 1984, how many words did my granny speak? And Jesus could tell you. So here's the good news. God has exchanged all of your words and all of your thoughts with the words and thoughts of Jesus, meaning your horrible record of bad words and evil, perverse thoughts has been taken away from you, transferred to Jesus, and you have been credited with the perfect speech and the perfect thought life of Jesus. He took all of your bad words and all of your bad thoughts to the cross, and he credited you with his perfect life so that when God looks at you, he sees, I see someone who has never said a bad word, who has never grumbled, who has never complained, who has never gossiped, who has never slandered. I see someone who has always spoken perfectly. And when he sees you, he says, I see someone who has never had a bad thought enter his mind, her mind once. That's the gospel. What kind of God are we dealing with here, Grace? One who is not like us at all. One who is so beyond us that we can never fully and completely comprehend him one whose understanding is beyond measure, as Psalm 147.5 says. And so here's the takeaway. God's omniscience should humble all of us this morning. He knows everything about us. Everything. And he doesn't run away. Sitting or standing in church 
God knows the depths of your heart and he loves you the same as Jesus. And if you struggle to believe that, if you still feel condemned at this point in the sermon, if you need assurance right now, then let the Apostle John drop an omniscience assurance bomb on you. Because he said this in 1 John 3, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Reassure your heart this morning, wobbly Christian. God is greater than your heart and he knows everything. You are loved, you are forgiven, you are accepted, you are safe, You are clean, all because of Jesus. Let that theology lead you to worship, adoration, praise, awe, and humility. It's not written in my notes, but and let it make your jaw drop. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so patient and so kind. We... We have spent our lives running our mouths and thinking all kinds of wicked thoughts and doing things and having motives behind all this and you are so patient with us, God. We have given you really every day of our life as evidence for you to condemn us, to zap us with a lightning bolt and yet you're so patient and you're so kind, and you're so merciful and gracious, and we are just in awe of you this morning. How could a holy, pure, infinitely glorious God love people like us? How could you, who knew no sin, go to the cross for our sin? And so we are just humbled this morning, Jesus, at your patience and your love. May it lead us to worship, to awe, to adoration, to humility. And may you be glorified. In your name we pray.